All right, well, normally we would be in 1 Corinthians, which we've only had a couple of classes in. But after all, <clears throat> it is Christmas time, right? So what would Christmas be without a Christmas message? When we get to Australia, there's a farming community down, <clears throat> excuse me, about two hours south of uh, Perth. Our son-in-law goes down there and teaches Bible class every week. And they've asked me to explain what is the meaning of Christmas. So that's going to be a great opportunity to spend some time with those people. Uh, farms over there are huge, you know, like 10,000 acres. They're just unbelievable. Cattle stations over there. Um, you know, I don't know if any of you have seen, you've probably heard of the series called Yellowstone. And in the Yellowstone series, one of the ranches that they referred to is the Four Sixes down in Texas, which is an actual ranch. And they call it the biggest ranch in the world. Well, there's a cattle station in South Australia that you could fit more than 50 of the Four Sixes in. So that's how big some of their uh, cattle stations are over there. But we always have a good time with the people over in Australia and especially the country folks. You know, I just seem to fit in and identify with them. Uh, we could bring them right in here and they just fit in. They're kind of, I don't know, common people, just, just great folks. So we're going to do something on the line of Christmas, and I want to begin by, uh, I want to have a word of prayer, but I'm going to begin with a quote from Luke. You don't need to turn there. Uh, I am going to ask you to follow along with me. We're going to look at eight different passages tonight. And I hope you'll be able to follow along with me, and I hope it'll be uh, very edifying and encouraging for you. But before we do that, we should ask the Lord's blessing, because I can neither teach the truth nor can you receive the truth unless God the Holy Spirit's in charge. We always need to humble ourselves and seek His leadership and guidance in everything that we do. So let's pray and ask him to do that for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a marvelous privilege once again for us to gather together in this home. We thank you for the open door and the hospitality that BJ always extends to us. I thank you, Father, for each and every one who has come this evening. Lord, we all have different lives and each of us face our various tests and trials. And I know that many times behind a smiling face, there's a heavy heart. I know that many times there are burdens that are being carried that are unknown to the rest of us. Sometimes there are wounds that need to be healed or questions that need to be answered or guidance with regards to decisions that have to be made. In all these things, we're dependent on you and we look to you to help us. And so our prayer tonight is that God the Holy Spirit will open the word, open our eyes and our ears, give us hungry and receptive hearts, teach us the truth of your word, and meet the many needs that are represented in the people who are here. And we will give you the thanks and the praise and the honor in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Nan, would you be so kind as to get me some water? some reason my throat seems a little dry tonight. So listen to the words. Thank you. Maybe if I lubricate it, it'll work better. 
Listen to the words of Zacharias. You'll remember Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. And you'll remember that when the angel came and told him that his wife Elizabeth was going to conceive and bear a son, he didn't believe it. And as a result, he was stricken, mute, unable to speak for the duration of that pregnancy. And then finally, when John was born, um, he broke out in praise to God. And this is just a small portion of what he says in Luke chapter 1, but this is Luke 1, 68 and 70. Listen closely. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. It's very interesting that Zacharias speaks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world and declares that it had been the central focus of the prophets since the world began. You know, I often have people ask me, how can we know that the Bible is the Word of God? I generally have the same answer. Study prophecy. Look at the prophecies of the Old Testament. Look at how they were fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't convince you, nothing will. And the reason for that is because only the Bible gives us prophetic utterance of things yet to come, not in the next month or in six years, but sometimes thousands of years. We'll see prophecies this evening concerning the coming of Jesus Christ into the world that are at least 4,000 years old. Some of them many hundreds, some of them in the thousands. <clears throat> you know, the world has its prophets, people like Nostradamus and others. And when they speak, they always speak in very vague terms. Uh, you could almost take their prophecy and apply it any time in history, some, somewhere, somehow, because it's very vague. It's always missing fine detail. Uh, and you never know when it's going to happen. I want you to consider, and I'll use Peter Stoner's illustration as an example. Uh, Peter Stoner was a brilliant mathematician. Uh, he was also what they call a probability scientist. Uh, they are able, through the use of, use of mathematics, to determine what are the chances of certain things happening. And they can, uh, again, by mathematics, pretty much narrow it down to exactly what are the chances like, for example, you winning the lottery, uh, maybe one in 10 million. I just read about a guy that won the lottery for the second time in a month. I think he got like $7 million. <clears throat> I have my theories on that, but I won't go into them tonight. <laughs> but the point is that in the Bible, we have over 40 different authors writing over a 1,500-year period of time in three different languages, from several different countries, all focused on the same truth, all anticipating and declaring certain things that were going to happen, and they all line up and agree perfectly. Peter Stoner said that if you took eight prophecies concerning the coming of Christ, and those prophecies were specifically fulfilled, and I'm going to give you eight tonight, not the same eight that he used, but I'm going to give you eight. Peter Stoner said the chance of those 
prophecies being fulfilled after hundreds or thousands of years would be one in 10 to the 17th power, which is one in 10 with 17 zeros, which most of us can't grasp. So he gave us an illustration so we'd understand just how rare that chance would be. He said, if you took the state of Texas and you covered the state of Texas a foot deep in silver dollars, I think it was a foot, it may have been two, but I'll, I'll say a foot. If you cover the state of Texas a foot deep in silver dollars and marked one of those dollars and sent someone into the state of Texas and the chance of them at some point reaching down and pulling up that marked silver dollar would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's only with eight prophecies of the coming of Christ. We have over 300 concerning his first coming alone. And so as we look at prophecy, we have to recognize prophecy is what it is because it comes from a God who is omniscient. He knows all things. The Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. Uh, he is also a God who is all places at the same time, omnipresent. And because he is who he is, he is able to inspire these holy prophets, as Zacharias referred to them, to give the prophecies that they give. And since Zacharias says, since the world began, let's go back to when the world began. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 3, the first of the prophecies. And as you're turning, I want to emphasize, different people try to estimate how much of our Bible is prophecy. Uh, the minimum estimate is probably 25%. Uh, some have es estimated 60 or more percent of our Bible is prophecy. Uh, it is a book of prophecy. It's built on prophecy. Uh, there are many, many passages that have prophetic significance uh, or prophetic uh, tendencies or shadows, we might say, that would not be specifically considered prophetic passages, and yet they do anticipate things in the future. So when we come to Genesis 3.15, you remember the story Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now the curse is coming down on the human race as well as the world at large. And God says here in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking here to the serpent, uh, which is, of course, the devil. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's very interesting because Zacharias talked about prophets who gave prophecies, and this prophet prophecy doesn't fit in that list. Can anyone explain why? Why would this prophecy not fit in what Zacharias was talking about? Because Zacharias said that the prophecies were given by prophets, and this prophecy was not given by a prophet. This prophecy was made by God himself. With each of these prophecies, there are always little implications, things that are implied, things that are suggested, things that are anticipated, that are worth spending just a little bit of time uh, working out. And so I want to draw out, as we look at each of these passages, some of the implications that are there. And in this one, we have three. Number one, the seed of the woman anticipates the virgin birth. And why is that? Well, because the woman doesn't have the seed, does she? 
The seed comes from the man. And in the case of Mary, that seed was implanted in her by God the Holy Spirit. And so it anticipates the virgin birth. The enmity that he speaks about, the hostility, anticipates the invisible spiritual war that has raged behind the scenes all through human history. You know, in this world, we have times of peace and we have times of war. Uh, nations rise up and go to war against other nations. But there is a war that's going on in which there is never peace. And that war rages behind the scenes. It rages all around us. And we refer to it as the invisible war, the spiritual war, or the angelic conflict. Is a war that was essentially declared by Lucifer against God. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 14. But that war is always raging and it affects our lives in many, many ways. You might want to look at Revelation 12, 1 through 11, uh, which gives a summary of that spiritual war. And then, of course, the bruising. The bruising of the heel speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A bruised heel is painful, but it's not fatal. Christ, of course, died on the cross, but death couldn't hold him, and he rose from the grave on the third day. The bruised head, however, refers to total destruction of the devil and his works. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 that Jesus Christ was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So we see our first prophecy, a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And again, this theme is the key to all biblical prophecy. It's all about him. It's all about how he came, why he came, and what his coming accomplished. And we'll see that as we go along. Turn with me to Genesis 49. We'll look at our next prophecy. You'll remember in Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. And to each of them, he gives a prophecy of what the future holds for them. <clears throat> and in Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8, he begins to speak of Judah. We're not going to look at the entire thing. If you would, uh, just look at me at verses 9 and 10. Judah is a lion's whelp. That's going to become important as uh, Scripture develops. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." And naturally, when we think about the lion, we think of Jesus as we see him revealed in Revelation chapter 5, where he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then, of course, when John looks at the lion of the tribe of Judah, what does he see? He sees a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, simply meaning that in the plan of God, the work of Christ on the cross was already known and considered a reality. The word scepter refers to the kingly line which began with David and ends with the person of Jesus Christ in his eternal reign. The name Shiloh, uh, there's a lot of dispute or uh, debate among scholars as to the meaning of Shiloh. There are two different words in the Hebrew that Shiloh can relate to. One is he who is to come. He who is to come. 
another is he who is rest, and a third, he who receives tribute. Really, you can apply all three of them. Uh, I'm not going to get uh, entangled in the debate or the discussion because, in my mind, all three of them apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, the obedience of the people, and this suggests what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 as obedience to the faith. What will the obedience of the people be? It will be the obedience of faith when they receive Jesus Christ as the promised Savior and their own personal deliverer. So of the tribe of Judah. See to the woman, anticipating virgin birth, tribe of Judah, we could follow the prophecies that just identify who he comes from because there's a whole line of them. And you start with Genesis 3.15 and half the human race is excluded. He's going to come from the woman, not the man. So half the human race is excluded. Then we come down to Genesis 49. Now all the other tribes are excluded. It's of the tribe of Judah. You come further down, it's of the house of David. You come further down, the story of the book of Ruth. Ruth enters into the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow it down to Matthew chapter 1 to a virgin by the name of Mary. So it's really a fascinating study. Uh, we won't go into all of that tonight, but we'll touch on some of it. As you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Now, lest you become bored, just remember that what I'm giving you here is that one silver dollar out of Texas, one foot deep in silver dollars. Think about that. These eight simple prophecies. Isaiah 7, 14, one of the very uh, often quoted verses around Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What are the implications? Well, first of all, we have to deal with the word virgin. Uh, those who are skeptical of the Bible or those who deny the truth of the Bible love to jump on this because the word that's used here in the Hebrew is actually young woman. It's not the word for a virgin. And so they jump on it and they say, well, the Bible doesn't really predict a virgin birth. It just predicts that a young woman would conceive. And so Jesus might have been the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier, blah, 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 and on and on they go. But of course, they don't study the scripture and they don't understand why this was done. In most prophecies, I've used this illustration before particularly with the Old Testament prophets. The prophet stands here looking forward into the future. He sees two mountaintops. The first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he makes a prophecy, he will often make a prophecy that has dual fulfillment, sometimes even before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there will be a fulfillment here, and then there will be a fulfillment here. What they didn't see in between was the age you and I live in, which we call the church age. And the reason they didn't see that is because God hid it from them. And he hid it from them 
so that it could be revealed to the Apostle Paul, who refers to it as the doctrine of the mystery. The doctrine of the mystery simply refers to that which was not previously revealed, but was in time revealed to the Apostle Paul. So all the phenomenal truths that we gain and that we glean as we study in our New Testament involve many, many things that Old Testament prophets knew nothing about. Uh, they did not have the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we experience. They didn't have the completed work of Christ on the cross. They didn't have an understanding of much of the events that are yet to take place in the future. And that's because it all relates to the time in which you and I live. Well, how does this apply to Isaiah? Well, Isaiah gives here in Isaiah 7.14 a prophecy with a dual application. The dual application is to his own son. If you go on into Isaiah chapter 8, you'll find in verses 3 and 4 that he has a son. Maybe I should just read a little further here in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and the good and to choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Well, we know that all of that didn't happen when Christ was born, did it? Turn the page with me to Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, Therefore the Lord said to me, Take the large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shal Hashbaz. I've, you know, a lot of people like to name their kids after biblical names. I've never run into anyone that did this one. And I will take for myself faithful witness to, to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Verse 3, then I went into the prophet, prophetess, this is Isaiah with his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. You can see that this is the same prophecy. The Lord spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh, again, that idea of peace that flows softly and rejoice in reason and in Remaliah's son. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he will go up over all his channels. So the point that I'm making here is you have two sons that are actually being spoken of. One son, Isaiah's. The other son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophecy encompasses both. So there's a reason that the prophet didn't use the word virgin. It doesn't change the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, nor its fulfillment in Matthew chapter 1. 
In Matthew 1.23, we don't need to turn to it, but you'll remember when the announcement was made to Mary, it was said, so that the prophecy may be fulfilled, the virgin shall conceive, and there the word virgin is used. Does that clarify or confuse? Hopefully it clarifies. Let's move on. Let's go to Micah. How long has it been since you've been in the book of Micah? Might have been a while. Sometimes we skip over a lot of these books in the Minor Prophets. By the way, we call them Minor Prophets, but they're actually major. The Minor Prophets, unlike the Major Prophets, spend their focus here. <coughs> Whereas prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel were primarily focused here, not totally, but primarily minor prophets are focused here. And they primarily talk about the second coming. I mentioned that there are over 300 prophecies of the first coming of Christ. There are over 500 prophecies concerning his second coming. Doesn't it stand to reason to you that if God fulfilled the 300 concerning his first coming precisely, that he will also do the same with those concerning the second coming? In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, again, a passage that's often used at Christmas time, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. What are the implications of the prophecy that we have before us? Well, I would suggest two things. Number one, we are given the specific place where Christ would be born. Again, to get back to Peter Stoner and his analogy, when the Bible makes prophecy, it not only deals with specific names, specific places, but it also gives us specific times. This is why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees of his generation when he said, you look at the sky and you can tell the signs of the sky, but you can't tell the signs of the times. You did not know the time of your visitation. Why should they have known the time of their visitation? Because on precisely the day that Daniel, who lived 500 years before Christ, Laid down in Daniel chapter 9, Jesus Christ rode in on a donkey in the triumphal entry. Not only did he do it precisely on the day, he also did it exactly as the prophet uh, Zechariah uh, prophesied. He came riding on a donkey in the foal of a donkey, which, by the way, was a symbol of peace. He came in peace and, of course, was crucified but we refer to that as the triumphal entry. So the specific place of Jesus' birth is here given, and you'll remember in the story when the wise men come from the east and they go to Herod and they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod calls the religious leaders together and he says, where is the Messiah going to be born? They all knew. Micah 5, 2, they quoted it. Though you are the least of the cities of Judah, out of you shall he come who shall rule my people. The second thing that's interesting in this prophecy is that it declares the divine nature 
of the Messiah, the divine nature of the Savior. Out of you shall he come to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In other words, he has always been here and he will always be here. Or as Jesus put it in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Go as far back as you want in history, past history, into eternity past, he is there. Go into the future as far as you want to push the envelope, and he is there because he always exists. Back up with me, if you will, to Isaiah 9, another passage that is very commonly quoted during the Christmas season. Another one that has some amazing implications for us. Isaiah chapter 9. This is our fifth prophecy. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to one day sit, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, on the throne of David. What are some of the implications? I want you to notice that the child here is born, but the son is given. Why is that significant? Well, it suggests the deity and the humanity of Christ. It reminds us, as we're told in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The son is given, the child is born. And of course, his deity is seen in the titles that are given. I run into people often and they say, no, there's no place in the Bible that ascribes deity to Christ. Well, they forget that both in John 5 and John 10, the Jews that hated him accused him of claiming equality with God and wanted to stone him. And ultimately, at his final trial before his crucifixion, the charge of blasphemy was leveled against him because he identified himself as the Son of God. He was crucified because of who he claimed to be. And he claimed to be God in the flesh. So what are the titles? Look at them again. Wonderful. Do you remember when the angel appeared to the mother of Samson and she got her husband and brought him out and the husband wanted to offer sacrifice and he said, what is your name and how did the angel respond? Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Wonderful is one of the names for God in the Old Testament. So his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Go through the book of Job and you'll see God playing the role of counselor, particularly in the closing chapters. And how about this one? Mighty God. 
It's pretty hard to get away from that one, isn't it? Everlasting Father. Some translate this Father of Eternity. In other words, the one who has the power to give eternal life. And then finally, Prince of Peace. So the names, of course, could never be applied to anyone who is merely a human being. We're dealing with God in the flesh. We're dealing with the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, who came into this world, the only one capable of bearing the penalty of our sins and providing us with the hope and the assurance of eternal life. For the next one, and you might find this one surprising, we'll go from the Old Testament to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 and verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Have any of you run across the prophecy in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene? Well, I know you haven't because it can't be found. And here again, the critics and the skeptics and the deniers and those who reject the authority of God's word. You know, it's always funny when these guys do this because they stick their neck out and make all kinds of claims. And then someone comes along who has the answer and it just chops it right off. And they always end up looking foolish. He should be called a Nazarene. I want you to notice that here it says, which was spoken by which prophet? Prophets, plural. When did many of the prophets say that he would be called a Nazarene? Well, the answer is in the root word for Nazarene, which is Netzer. Why is that word so important? because it's used in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Let me take you to a few passages. Isaiah 4. I told you I was only going to take you to 8. We're going to go to a few more. This is an important point. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing, for those of Israel who have escaped. The word branch is the word netzer. The root word of Nazareth. The branch. What kind of a branch? A beautiful and glorious branch. Turn with me to Isaiah 9. I'm sorry, Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You remember in our study of Revelation, it talked about the seven spirits of God, and here they are. But the branch would grow out of the roots of Jesse. 
Go with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23. I won't take you to all of these, but just to build the case. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The branch that is our righteousness. Jeremiah 33. Verse 15 and 16. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. This is the name by which he will, she will be called here, referring to Jerusalem, the Lord, our righteousness. I won't take you to all the others. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 8. And Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12. Anybody not get those that wants to get them down? Isaiah 4.2. Isaiah 11.1. 1, Jeremiah 23.5. Jeremiah 33.15 and 16. Zechariah 3.8. And Zechariah 6.12. Now here's the thing that is really astounding about all these references to the branch. Jesus, even in his own time, was referred to as the Nazarene. But they didn't realize what they were saying. They were just speaking of the place where he grew up, Nazareth. <coughs> but they didn't realize that they were confirming what the prophets had told us in the passages that I've given to you. And here's what I find to be an astounding thing. If you go through these passages on the branch, relate them to the Gospels, and here's what you'll find. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as royalty. The branch shall reign over Israel. In the Gospel of Mark, he is presented as a servant. And you'll find in one of those references, I believe it's in the Zechariah references, he will be a servant. Luke refers to the Lord Jesus in his humanity, and he is called the man, the branch. And then finally, John refers to him in his deity. And so the prophetic passages of the branch line up perfectly with the four Gospels. How amazing is that? Absolutely astounding and exciting. Well, let's go back to Isaiah 53. We're about done. We've got two more to look at. Isaiah 53, I'm sure you're all familiar with. I remember when I was in Phoenix back in the early 70s. And I remember there was, I believe, a Hebrew school. It was either in Phoenix or somewhere else. I can't remember the whole story. But uh, I remember somebody in our chapel service bringing this up, that there was a Christian who worked at this Hebrew school, Hebrew high school. And every day they would start their day with a reading from the scripture, from the Old Testament. 
And one day the person who did the reading was not there and they asked this Christian, would you read a portion of scripture from the Old Testament? He said, I would love to. He read from Isaiah 53. He was fired from the school for preaching Christ out of their own scriptures. So here we are in Isaiah 53. Just notice with me a few of the things that are said. Isaiah says in verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him, Christ shall grow up before God the Father, as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Some have suggested from this that Jesus was ugly. I don't think that's what the prophet's saying. I think what he's saying is simply that here we have a man who is God in the flesh, and yet he is very humble and appears to us simply as a common member of the human race. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah, by the way, is speaking 700 years before Christ, and he's talking as if he was present when Christ came. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You'll remember John says in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Christ died for every member of the human race. Christ paid the penalty for every member of the human race. Um, it goes on in verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears was silent. Remember how Pilate stood in awe as he questioned the Lord Jesus Christ, and there came a point where he simply refused to answer and remained silent. If you drop down to verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he has put him to grief. Uh, the idea of please the Lord has the idea of propitiation. He satisfied God's righteous demand for the payment of sin. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. So Isaiah goes into great detail concerning not only the crucifixion. Uh, if you go to Zechariah 12.10, uh, you'll find even more detail. Uh, Zechariah, for example, spoke about the crucifixion before crucifixion was known. How interesting is that? In Zechariah, he says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for the firstborn. Uh, you also have prophetic passages that talk about they pierced 
my hands and my feet. And again, these prophecies were given long before crucifixion was even known. Again, talking about uh, the clarity that the prophets had. So in these passages, we see the rejection of Jesus by his own people. We see his crucifixion vividly portrayed as the penalty for our sins. We also see his resurrection is anticipated as he will return to repentant and believing Israel at his second coming. And that brings us to our last one, which is in the oldest book of the Bible, which is Job. Turn with me to the book of Job. When I was a kid, I never understood why there was a book called Job. <laughs> Job 19. <clears throat> I always remember when I come to this passage being in an English lit class in high school. And we had a dear lady who was a teacher and she outsmarted the authorities. If you remember in 1963, reading the Bible and prayer were banned in school. I never used to pray openly in school. I never used to carry my Bible openly in school until the Supreme Court said, you can't do it. And as soon as they said, you can't do it, I started doing it. And my fellow students would say, you can't do that here. And I said, I just did it. So they can't stop me. Well, this lady outsmarted them because she decided to study Job as literature. She gave an assignment to each of the students in the class, and we were assigned a chapter, and we were to take that chapter and just express what we thought that chapter was saying. Well, by the grace and the plan of God, I was given Job 19. Here's the passage that I was allowed to explain. Job says, I'll begin in verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Guess what, Job? They are. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. <clears throat> Begin by considering that Job lived at least 2,000 years before Christ. Job predated Abraham. Job lived over 500 years before the book of Genesis was written. That's how far back we go with Job the prophet. And notice what he talks about. First of all, I know that my Redeemer lives. He knew that he needed a Savior, and he knew that God was going to send a Savior. The word Redeemer and the term redemption is specifically important for the reason that it explains those who stood in the slave market and were purchased out of the slave market. Uh, one of the words that is used for Redemption in the New Testament is lutrao. Lutrao has the idea of buying someone. Uh, agorazo is a word that specifically relates to the buying of a slave out of the slave market. 
But the emphasis of lutrao is that this person has been purchased, and then it, they add the preposition apo, which means away from, and the idea of apo lutrao is, I got bought out of the slave market and set free. That's the idea of redemption. So Job says, I know that my Redeemer is living. Not that he will live. Again, he's living now. Emphasizing his deity. And he knows that the Redeemer will stand at last on the earth. Well, he stood on the earth 2,000 years ago. And he will stand on the earth again when he comes the second time. He knows that this is going to happen. He also anticipates his own resurrection. Even after my body is destroyed, even after the decay of the grave, in my flesh, this body, Job says, that I am now in, is going to be raised incorruptible. Paul goes into this, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, and I am going to stand in the presence of my Savior. What an amazing hope. You know, I don't know how people out there in the world are able to live day by day. Life is hard enough. There's enough deception out there. There's enough disappointment out there. There's enough burdens out there to break the spirit of any person. But to have to face this world, and especially as we're watching our nation, I don't know if you've been following the news, over 12,000 illegals are flooding across the Arizona border every day. Do you know what happens when they come across? They're given a cell phone. They're being told, wait for instructions. They're being given cards, EBT cards that have $3,000, which is filled up every month. And they're being given plane tickets to anywhere they want to go. You, I can't get on a plane unless I have my ID. They don't need any ID. I don't have any government card that gives me $3,000 a month to live on. And the interesting thing, and the terrifying thing, it should terrify us, is that 95% of them are military-age males from 124 countries around the world. I said this probably, I don't know, six months ago, eight months ago. I said, you watch. They're going to take them into the military, and they're going to use the military as a means of giving them service. And when they get them into the military, what are they going to do? They're going to have no allegiance to you and I. They're going to have no allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. Well, now it's being openly pushed and spoken of in Congress. Let's take them into the military. We will arm them. We will train them. And we will then give them citizenship. And you may find them knocking on your door one day. So how do you face the world? And how do you face the clouds that are gathering? I don't know of any other way. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that he bought me on the cross so that I could spend eternity in his presence. I also know that he guides me. And I know that those who walk in fellowship with him have a hedge of protection around them that no one else can ever know or ever experience. And we've seen that proved over and over again as we've traveled all around the world. God's guidance, God's protection, God's deliverance is one of the most amazing things in the world. 
I would not want to live one day without the confidence that Job expresses in this passage. So with all of those prophecies, again, only eight out of over 300, how astounding are they? I didn't get into Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 gives us the precise date when the Lord Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. Zechariah, as I mentioned, told us exactly how he would come in on a donkey. We could go on and on and on. But I hope that you'll take these eight prophecies, and I hope as we go into this season, you know, Christmas is, for many people, the most unhappy time of their year. Suicides always increase around Christmas. People are lonely. People are hurting. Uh, people see others that are prospering and they're not prospering. Um, people are hurt because of broken relationships, whatever the cause may be. I would really encourage you to consider your little circle of influence, the people you rub shoulders with. And I would consider, I would ask you to consider thinking about how are they really doing? Maybe not just a smile on their face, but what's really going on in their life. You might be able to be a source of tremendous blessing. When we talk about gift giving, you know what the greatest gift you can give? The gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what the second greatest gift? Give yourself. Give of yourself to someone who's in need. And I promise you, if you'll give those gifts as you're able during this time, it'll make this Christmas season the most blessed you've ever had. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its power. We especially thank you for its life-changing effect. Father, I pray that we'll receive it with humility, that we'll receive it in simple childlike faith, and that we'll receive it as the absolute truth. Help us to rest the burdens of our souls on the solid foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who came into this world to die for us, but who rose from his own grave and is coming again. Help us live our lives looking for that coming, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.